Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Fuds on Film podcast. I'm Scott. I'm joined today by Drew. You brought a lot of shotguns. Hell, you brought a lot of Russians. And also by Greg. Son of a bitch. Today, we are simply talking about a bunch of films, what we saw this month. So, one of the films that we saw this month is Nomadland. Craig, would you like to talk about that? If I must. Um, <laughs> in Chloe Zhao's Nomadland, Frances McDormand is Fern, a widower who, approaching retirement age, finds herself out of both job and home as a result of the late noughties financial crisis. Mainly out of necessity, but perhaps latterly, we come to understand, also born partly of a nascent pioneer spirit, Fern adopts the life of a van-dwelling modern nomad, eking a frugal living out of seasonal Amazon warehouse work via their Camper Force initiative and other odd jobs throughout the remainder of the year. The movie follows Fern as she becomes an on-off member of a loose collective of other nomads, mentored by Bob Wells, here playing himself as the founder of the hugely influential Cheap RV Living website. It has been something of a talking point around the movie that much of its cast is comprised of non-actors, most of whom are authentic nomads themselves, though in addition to McDormand we are also treated to an appearance from the always excellent David Strathairn as Dave, with whom Fern develops a low-key bond. Colour me cynical, but besides the veneer of authenticity, I also think a good reason to cast non-actors is that it helps one make this kind of a movie very cheaply. Five million dollars in this case, give or take. That's fine, and everyone involved seems happy with the arrangement, but throughout the whole affair, I couldn't really shake a feeling that there was something exploitative going on, a sense that was only compounded when I read an article of reputable origin which stated some of the nomads were surprised to find out McDormand was not actually one of them. <laughs> um, I'll be overthinking that horribly, no doubt, and I don't think it's something anyone else seems bothered about, but it's part of a larger sense of dissatisfaction I have with the movie that I can't quite put my finger on. It's not that I need a laser-focused, propulsive narrative and or a caravan to randomly explode, but I'm also not saying that I don't think it would have helped. The value one finds in a meandering tale such as Nomadland will often boil down to what one makes of the characters, and this is a movie where the most interesting ones quite often disappear after five minutes of screen time, never to be seen again. Swanky, I'm looking at you. My biggest gripe is perhaps that I find McDormand allowing a little too much of her own personal idiosyncrasy into the role of Fern. I do like and admire McDormand a great deal as an actor, but I also harbour the suspicion that we'd probably find each other insufferable in person. There are moments here where I suspect we are seeing more of Frances than Fern, and where her contemplative ogling of the distant horizon borders a little too closely upon Emile Hershey's gurning in that insufferable Sean Penn directorial effort from a while back. As interesting a concept as it is, I strongly suspect I'd enjoy Nomadland more as an out-and-out documentary rather than this halfway house drama hybrid. I'm also incredibly glad that movies like this are being made right now, regardless of whether or not I enjoy them. And given everyone else whose opinion I value so far has told me they really enjoyed it, including my wife, I wouldn't want to try and actively dissuade you from seeing it. Have at it, I suppose. Yeah, uh, I also had that feeling about the documentary, Craig. Uh, oh, cool. I think partly I am not alone. <laughs> no, uh, partly because the the non-actors are so clearly non-actors. And yeah. then you have them against two people, Dave Struthairn and Francis Warren, who are such good actors that it, yeah. it really... It becomes quite um, dissonant, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. I find Nomadland quite, an, a, quite a pleasant experience. It's interesting. Mm. It, I'm seeing places and people that you don't tend to see in film, so it has that going for it. That's always uh, going to be a good thing. Yeah, uh, but beyond that, it's like, meh, okay. But I resolutely failed to see what all the fuss is about. I'd been really looking forward to this because, well, mm. it's always foolish to be, or potentially foolish to do that, but I've seen all the awards. People talk about it for so long. I thought, oh, this is going to be something really special. It's, it's fine. It's okay. I, I don't see where all the, the hyperbole, or as far as I'm concerned, hyperbole is coming from. And yeah, I'm really struck with that thing at the end. It's like, of. I mean, you may have something about the, the exploitative nature, but I'm not sure. I don't know enough about Chloe Zhao to to really get a handle on that. But yeah, no, there, there is that dissonance of like the the non actors really stand out because they look like non actors. So yeah, like, why just not? Why not just make a documentary? There, I, yeah, I there are, I, there are sections of it where where those non actors are sort of uh, delivering dialogue that is clearly not scripted and whatnot, and it comes across more as though they're being interviewed about something. Exactly. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, and tonally it just sort of, and then you know the camera will cut across to Francis McDormand sort of like smiling kindly at them as she's taking it all in, and it just it just has the air of sort of some sort of you know panorama report or something like that. It's just uh, yeah, yeah, I just found it oddly dissonant, and uh, I couldn't couldn't quite gel with it. I'm not dis- you know I'm not, I'm not angry that I watched it as I you know as I might be about some other films we'll discuss tonight, um, but yeah, no. I couldn't find myself caring a lot about it. No, no, am I? I said I found it a relatively pleasant experience to watch, and there was that interest there. But there's certainly plenty of times when a particular story can be told best as a fiction, whether based on something true or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, and here, no, I think it's gone the other way because it really did. Those felt like talking head segments, segments of a documentary, and like just and like Swanky in particular. I know her life story is is very similar to how it's portrayed in the film but the ending is different yeah like that, that she didn't go off and do that thing i'm like well why i'm sure she was interested enough in her own just make a documentary i know that you would have to change an awful lot about it yeah i would straight up watch 90 minutes of just basically chatting with her about why she's doing what she's doing yeah so yeah it's a pleasant enough thing i just i, I don't get the the crazy praise it's got it's yeah. a fine film yeah scott tell us we're wrong I heard this described as a tone poem, and it has not been a tone poem kind of week for me, so I've not seen this. Um, <laughs> I'll get to this. Fair enough. <laughs> Apathy okay. is the consensus, then. Okay, um, <laughs> so there is something you have seen, Scott, which is Palmer. Uh, you could tell us about that. I don't have a clever linking device, so, you know, got standards to keep up and all. <laughs> Uh, Palmer sees the sainted Jushin Timberlake, who died for her sins and brought sexy back, play Eddie Palmer. <laughs> Returning to his small hometown after a lengthy stint behind bars for what is revealed eventually to be a serious assault and theft rap. He moves back in with his grandmother, June Scribbs Vivian, and tries to get his life in some sort of order in a town still wary of him, eventually becoming a janitor at the high school, at which he was once the star footballman. Intruding on his home life on occasion is the neighbour's kid, Ryder Allen's Sam, a gender non-conforming lad in the area not known for welcoming such things, although Palmer is supportive. He is occasionally looked after by Vivian during the stretches where his drug-addled mother, Juno Temple's Shelley, heads off into unknown for what is presumed to be weeks of druggery. This status quo comes to abrupt abrupt end when, whilst she's off on one of these excursions, Vivian dies, leaving Sam, by default, in Eddie's custody, at a time when he's already dealing with the stress of loss. Ultimately, Eddie feels he cannot face putting Sam into the government care system and agrees to look after him until his mother resurfaces, aided on occasion by Sam's teacher, Alicia Wainwright's Maggie, who Eddie soon falls for. Eddie and Sam also form a solid bond over the course of things, to the point that Eddie will want to outright remove Sam from his family when Shelley and her abusive boyfriend eventually return, still using, in yet another example of why they should have been deemed unfit parents many, many years before Eddie got out of jail. This leads to an ending that for a moment convinced me it was going to take a dark return before settling back into a more crowd-pleasing family ending, which I perhaps should have expected given the familiarity of all the elements of it to Mm. that point. If you've been to as many rodeos as we have, there's no part of Palmer that's not been seen before, if perhaps not in exactly this configuration. So Palmer is not going to win any awards for originality, or indeed any worse at all really, unless it's a what award for most adequate motion picture, <laughs> which is perhaps a bit more dismissive than I mean it to be after all. I don't think there's anything much of significance that I disliked about Palmer. And there's a lot that's somewhere between perfectly solid and good. Eddie, Sam and to a degree Maggie are all fairly well fleshed out, believable characters and well enough acted by all concerned. By virtue of needing to be absent for most of the film, I suppose Juno Temple's a little hard done by, but she's certainly giving it a role. I don't think there's a lot to Palmer other than a fairly well put together, enjoyable flick to spend 100 of your Earth minutes with, but maybe that's all it needs to be. Fine out of ten. That's <laughs> already put it in a strong position this month. <laughs> yeah, um, I only watched this because it was plastered over the front page of Apple TV Plus for a while. Yeah, um, I don't think I'd even heard about it otherwise. And you're right, Scott. It's like it's nothing new here. I've seen many, many films of this broad structure, you know, almost this exact topic. Um, I've seen many, many of them like this that are entirely satisfactory. I don't regret watching it. It was a pleasant enough experience, but it's just, it really doesn't stand out from the crowd. Yeah. Uh, I think for me, the only the only two things that are maybe worth mentioning, I'm always quite impressed with Justin Timberlake in it. 
he's yeah, he's likable. He, he's maybe trying to a bit too hard to look a bit kind of grim and pouty throughout. Uh, yeah, but beyond that, I, mean, I thought he was pretty solid, and it's not anything I've seen Justin Timberlake do before that I can recall this kind of role. So I thought um, as a showcase for him, it's pretty reasonable. Yeah. Um, and the only other thing that caught my eye is when the end credits came up and I saw the name of the director, uh, which I did not expect. Uh, and he may well have been doing it for some time, but directed by Fisher Stevens, of all people. Who I, well, I, I don't know that think, name. I can only think of Fisher Stevens as, why were you black in short circuit? Why? Why, Fisher Stevens? Why? Oh why, movie? God. Why? <laughs> no way. Yes. Fisher Stevens, you know, the... The white Jewish man from Chicago who played yep. Ben Jabutuya in Short Circuit, the <laughs> man from India, as, mm-hmm. uh, as we discussed on our eighties um, films, eighties kids films episodes. Uh, quite surprised to see that name there, uh, but that's it. Other than that, uh, Palmer's uh, it's entirely forgettable, and that's perhaps unfair because it's a, it's a well-made film and it's well enough acted. It's just it's not anything you've not seen before. I suspect. Mm-hmm. I imagine if I hadn't seen like what thirty years worth of basically this film over and over again, I'd be more impressed with it. Mm. Um, if this was, if this was not the eleven hundredth time I've been to this rodeo, I'd be more impressed with the uh, clowns going off and the general, the general milieu. But yeah, um, yeah, there's not much there that you, you won't have seen before if you're as old and jaded as we are. <laughs> Which, let us be scrupulously exact, is very old and very jaded. <laughs> we'll give over. Shall we batter onwards then to The Human Voice? Yes. The Human Voice is the new short film from Pedro Almodovar, his first work at all in English, and something I've been looking forward to seeing for a long time. Such anticipation can be a dangerous thing, though, and well, The Human Voice is now a thing that I have seen. Uh. Based loosely on Jean Cocteau's stage model drama of the same name The bones of which Almodovar had already adapted into 1988's Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown The work sees Tilda Swinton as a woman left by her lover of several years Awaiting his arrival to collect his belongings and enjoy a final goodbye Only to be made to make do with a phone call Of which we hear only one side the usual Almodovar table stakes are met. The film's absolutely luscious, with wonderful saturated colours, dominated by reds and oranges. And the acting is excellent. Tilda Swinton, an actor I've never much cared for, but have greatly warmed to in recent years, is captivating. And despite the incredibly interesting set she's in, an apartment revealed to be inside of a soundstage, suggesting her relationship is also artifice, but the apartment is full of Almodovar style, it's hard to take your eyes off of her as she talks to her unheard lover and the details of their relationship and its nature revealed. It's intriguing. Who is this lover? What was the nature of the relationship? Who caused it to end? Was the mention of blackmail genuinely a reassurance or a veiled threat? Swinton swings from bleak despair to anger to pleading to introspection, eventually covering roughly the traditional five stages of grief in the compressed time frame of this one emotional, cathartic phone call. Just her. A great performance in a beautiful film. And yet... And yet... I... don't care. <laughs> this short is definitely not passing Scott's Garth Marenghi test as it's full of subtext and metatext. For a 30-minute film, it's incredibly dense, and students of film could pour over this. And maybe they should. I just wish I could say I wanted to join them. Awesome dog out of ten. <laughs> ah, that's, that's a bummer. I, uh, I forgot to look for this to steal it, so I didn't watch it. And now I kind of feel like I don't want to, which is... Uh, well, I mean, I, I I blow hot and cold with Almodar films, even when the films that I don't like, I'm generally not regretful for having watched them. There's only something interesting in there, even if I absolutely hate them, so I'll, I'll probably get to it at some point, but yeah. I definitely don't regret watching it, and um, again, it's 30 minutes, I may watch it again, because I watched it this morning after, I'm, I'm literally coast on about five hours sleep after the past three days, and now a heavy cold, so maybe I was in the best place. <laughs> But just, I couldn't find anything, but it just looks so lovely. So for 30 minutes, it's a thing that looks really nice. 
you could do worse. <laughs> I mean, I've been wanting to see us for ages, and after we spoke about it last week, Scott, the next mm. day it was on HBO Max. So, oh, I can finally watch it now. So that's good. Because <laughs> it wasn't, didn't seem to be available anywhere. Uh, so yeah, it looks lovely. And it, because it's so... I, for other directors, I, I might say it was navel casey, but in this case, I think it's more introspective. But it's, it's so self-referential, and so many kind of metatextual comments about Almodovar and his career and previous films and stuff that I'm sure there's so much to dig into there. But I was watching this thing, yeah, yeah, and don't really care to. Um, hmm. Something that may change, but I don't regret watching it again. It's hard to find a 30 minute film you'd regret watching, I think. Yeah. But maybe one for the scholars, um, much like the next film we'll talk about, yes. without remorse. <laughs> did, you, did you? Would you? Would you say you've killed my intro there, Scott? I was going to ask Drew. Would you? Would you say you don't have any remorse about watching that half hour <laughs> a mode of our film, Drew? Did you Just say something? <laughs> did you say something about a naval gaze? <laughs> what? Um, <laughs> say what you will about Tom Clancy's politics. Naval gaze—they're no. allowed now, right in the United States. Oh right, okay, yeah, I'm reading that a different way, but thanks, thanks for killing uh, the actual start of my review as well. Um, <laughs> we're professional like that. Say what you will about Tom Clancy's politics. No, go ahead, say what you will. You would like the naval gaze, I don't think. Yeah, he didn't like the naval gaze. <laughs> he had a naval gaze. Yeah, ironically, did not like naval gaze. Um, the man wrote some decent enough thrillers, even if erring somewhat on the masturbatory, so far as military is concerned. Uh, we've had a decent enough volume of mid to high quality movie adaptations from his works, and now Amazon have seen fit to bring us his, uh, or sorry, this adaptation of Without Remorse, the record breaking 1993 novel that tells the origin story of recurring Clancy figure John Clark. Formerly John Kelly, the novel sees the protagonist, a former Navy SEAL, grieve a dead wife before his new love is tortured and murdered by a drug trafficking ring, being left for dead, rehabilitated and sent to wreak havoc in Vietnam, then returning to the US to set about assassinating more drug traffickers, fake his own death and change his name to embark on a career of more murder for the CIA. I mean, it's the life we'd all want to live. I bring this up in some detail because it's important to understand that the movie Without Remorse has absolutely nothing to do with any of this. <laughs> in fact, it's got so little to do with any of this, one wonders why bother labelling it as such in the first place. It is also really, really bad and really, really stupid. In our instance, John Kelly, Michael B. Jordan, is an elite Navy SEAL. And there the similarities end. We join him and his colleagues on a mission in Syria, spearheaded by slippery CIA operative Robert Ritter, Jamie Bell, which turns out to be a covert strike against Russian assets in the area. When it all goes predictably pear-shaped, the team are understandably miffed at Ritter, but not as miffed as they will be when they start getting knocked off back home in an apparent act of retaliation by the Russians. Now... That's a decent enough setup for a movie like this, but unfortunately, there the intrigue ends and the stupidity very much begins. Kelly's pregnant wife is killed in the attempt on his own life, which leaves him badly shot up, and from here we end up going down that predictable and woefully overtrodden road of macho revenge fantasy. A macho revenge fantasy that sees Kelly's rage leveraged by the CIA in an entirely improbable incursion into Russia, which basically serves to lend the movie a scale it neither earns nor deserves. The whole endeavour is so massively improbable that at times it defies belief, and I find it hard to imagine Clancy would have approved of the kind of ineptitude displayed here, albeit fictionally, by his beloved military. I was initially baffled by the presence of Jordan, arguably one of the best young actors of his generation, who is here merely functional. When I realised he had a producer credit, I was perhaps even more perplexed, but then one assumes this was planned as some kind of a vehicle for further franchise entries in the Clark saga for Jordan to spearhead. Whether those will now materialise, only time will tell, but if they do, I hope a lot more respect is paid to any source materials that may be involved. Jamie Bell is at least having some fun as the convincingly scummy Ritter, even if his unexpected emergence as a genuine ally later in the film comes incredibly unconvincingly. I don't know how much fun, if any, director Stefano Salima would have been having, because despite his strong credentials in both film and television to date, he clearly cannot escape the stupidity of Taylor Sheridan and Will Staples' script. In fairness, he manages to wrangle one or two decent moments of action, notably an interrogation inside of a burning car, but there's nothing whatsoever here to parallel his work on the likes of Gamora or 000. 
I'd honestly suggest that even Clancy diehards ought to avoid this one, and in fact I'd say it'll probably anger them the most. For my part, I just don't care about without remorse, other than to grudge it the two hours of my life I'll never get back. Those two hours which you have plenty of remorse about. Yes, indeed. You guys haven't seen this, have you? No. Good um, for you. This is the <laughs> was it there for the third screen portrayal of John Clark, I guess? Uh, sounds about right because yeah, you had Willem yeah. Dafoe and Leave Schreiber, I think, Lee as Schreiber well. Schreiber and uh, some of all fears, yeah, yes, and this is certainly the least convincing of them all. It's just really disappointing to find uh, Jordan so involved in at numerous levels of this material because it's not good at all. And I'm blaming Taylor Sheridan and Will Staples for the script, but I suspect I don't know it might be Will Staples because Taylor Sheridan's got some form. Um, with his uh, with his previous works and and there's enough evidence there that he knows how to write stuff and some of this is just so egregiously bad that you think wow okay maybe Taylor Sheridan you know had a first pass and then Will Staples came along and just I don't know spilled jam on it or something um, <laughs> it's just uh, I mean. I don't even want to go down the rabbit hole of discussing specifically things about this film that are stupid because I wouldn't know where to start and I certainly wouldn't know where to end and it would take <laughs> up the rest of the podcast. But, I mean, it's the kind of it's the kind of film where... Uh, I was listening to another podcast and it was a while ago now um, and the name of it escapes me now, but they had on a guest who was an actor himself. He was one of the guys who acted in... Uh, it's the detail I give that makes these anecdotes impressive. <laughs> what was that silly horror film about people in Scandinavia taking drugs and... Midsummer. Yes. He was one of the actors in uh, Midsummer, right. And uh, he made a comment about this type of movie where straight away he said, you know exactly what I'm talking about if I say to you a middle-aged man looks at someone's body and goes, No! Right? <laughs> um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's that, but wrapped around something that's trying to be a Tom Clancy thriller. But Tom Clancy would never write a thriller where an American military incursion and the people planning it would be so stupid as to going to somewhere so volatile as Russia where where any direct American military involvement on the ground is going to lead to World War III. Um, and they're going to go in there in a poorly planned mission carrying American gear, American weapons, dressed in American... <laughs> in American... <laughs> <laughs> carrying hamburgers and Budweiser yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're just like no this is not a thing please this is not a thing I mean maybe one day I'll go back to this and write an, ex- an exhaustive list of, of all the things that are stupid about it but I don't know I don't, maybe it's the masochist in me maybe I will do that it's just like impressively stupid and I don't want anyone to waste their time on it and it's just really disappointing <laughs> that Michael B. Jordan who is uh, someone who um, I, I really like and most stuff that he's done clearly feels invested in this to the point where he kind of wants to make a franchise out of it because everything has to be a franchise these days it has to be conceived as a series and as a, as an opening salvo this is just so poorly conceived uh, at every level that um, I really hope it gets shut down pretty quickly yeah I'm, yeah, I'm curious about the construction of it because Taylor Sheridan's had a couple of bad films, particularly the sequel to Sicario, but then Sicario was so good and Hell or High Water was excellent as well. Yeah, exactly. Whereas Will Staples has done Call of Duty games and, and they're good story-wise, yeah. particularly and honestly, Modern Warfare that's, 3. That's, that's, it's, this is much closer to something like that than it is to uh, something like Hell or High Water. So it certainly sounds like it. Yeah. So yeah, please avoid. Please avoid. Okay, um, Scott, I'm going to say some some scary words now. Netflix have been trying sci-fi again. <laughs> um, Indeed. Did they done good or did they done bad? As we were talking, of course, about Stowaway, in which a mission to Mars goes wrong. I'm as shocked as you are. Let's just hope there's no ghosts when we get there. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> Tony Collette's Marina Barrett reports to Ground Control that her launch appears to have used up more fuel than expected and is told not to worry about it. Which seems odd, but odder still is when she notices blood coming from the walls of the ship. Oh no, it's going all event horizon again. Uh, no, thankfully it turns out it's simply one of the ground techs that had an accident during final prep falling unconscious and apparently no one noticed his absence. <laughs> Seems wildly unlikely, but maybe Elon <laughs> tweeted something about a non-fungible Dogecoin and distracted everyone or something. 
At any rate, the presence of Shavier Anderson's Michael Adams soon presents more of a problem than a simple lack of crew quarters. While Anna Kendrick, Sol Levinson and Daniel Day Kim's David Kim initially get on with their work helped where possible one Michael, turns out having him bounce around in the wall cavities during launch has irreparably knocked out a crucial piece of life support equipment. Essentially, there's not enough oxygen to get into Mars and nothing that the Brains Trust back home can think of to help, particularly after the repurposing of David's algae experiments into an ad hoc oxygen scrubber fails. So, the crew are left with the horrendous moral dilemma of sacrificing some so that others can live. Now, can I take a quick moment to simply congratulate this film for existing, despite a complete absence of pan-dimensional horrors or other <laughs> such nonsense? It's a science fiction film that's more or less about gasp, science, not magic. And in a great many ways, it's a throwback to the cinema of the 70s, which is where I imagine a lot of the most common criticisms of the film are coming from. Sure, it's slow-paced, although compared to the Andromeda strain, it's a thrill-minute roller coaster. So in a lot of ways, I think this is more of a flaw with the audience than with the film. In fact, I really like approximately 90% of this film. There's a solid set of turns from the ensemble and they do, uh, they and the script do a fairly good job of conveying the emotion, stress and gravity of the piece, particularly when push is coming to shove without being laden with overly descriptive, clunky dialogue. I like that while it's perhaps not exactly hard science fiction, it's at least a slightly squidgy solid. The production design is also fairly on point and believable, certainly for a relatively small budget, and there's a lot more here that I like than dislike, to be sure. It's a shame that the one thing I did dislike threw a bit of a pal over the final reel, which, without giving too much away uh, when it comes time for the sacrifice that's been on the card since about the 20-minute mark, there's seemingly an arbitrary clock put on it that, well, I can't exactly check the maths on, so I suppose we'll just have to go with it, but it really does not seem to jibe with the earlier description of the situation. It left me kind of flummoxed trying to remember if I'd missed something, rather than enjoying what's supposed to be the emotional crescendo of the piece, and wondering why an excess of solar radiation gives people a weird green aura that in cartoons we didn't with a stench. <laughs> something also tells me... Uh, something also tells me there's a logical further act that would be more interesting than that moment of sacrifice itself, as the survivors deal with the mm. not inconsiderable remainder of the voyage. So maybe as a film, it doesn't quite stick the landing and its pace means it's not going to be for everyone. But if you're a fan of the more serious side of sci-fi from days gone by, I'd say it's worth putting on your watch list. If for no other reason, to encourage the powers that be to make some more of it, please. Uh, Yes, solid, I'd say. You are going to need a bit of uh, tolerance for the more sedately paced stuff. But uh, yeah, uh, overall, I quite liked it. Yeah, um, solid's a good word. I think I liked it somewhat less than you, but I... I still find a lot to like in it, principally that it exists. Yes. That's another thing. <laughs> yes. yeah. I like this. Uh, in some ways, it reminded me a little of The Martian and that like, clearly some thought had gone into the actual kind of science behind it. Um, yeah, well, while still maintaining the fact that it needs to be a film that you can yeah. understand if you don't have an astrophysics degree. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. although, I mean, I, I must admit, some of that struck me as a bit wrong. The entire thing goes wrong because they're... CO2 scrubber that got broken the single one for a two year trip to Mars and you, you had no backup this, this seems convenient for plot and not convenient for yeah. astronauts so and also um, the fact it was knackered didn't show up in instrumentation before this uh, yeah um, and yeah how you can suddenly miss an entire person um, when yeah. I'm sure those are security risks as <laughs> Jake Boosie showed us in contact, right? <laughs> that great science fiction documentary. Um, and, yeah, I mean, the idea too that given the, I mean, I know like every kilogram counts in space travel, but the massive weight of that ship, they're really going to notice the weight of a 70 kilogram man is going to make that much difference whether they get to orbit or not. That seems... A bit of a stretch, but it's a little bit of drama at the start, so I'm not so fussed about that, really not. Although, the way gravity seems to work when they're going to get the oxygen later, suddenly they're repelling down things. Really? <laughs> not so sure about that. Um, but the like the meat of it, I really enjoyed the the, the dilemma and um, that there's nobody just like losing their mind and saying, I have to survive or anything. No. Yeah. They're being pragmatic <laughs> as much as you can be, and you you see the shots of them sitting like depressed, like they know they're not asking anybody anything reasonable. Um, or like yeah. it, it's clearly getting to them. It seems at first that Daniel Day Kim is a bit kind of well, being a bit of an asshat, really. You think it, but you see him afterwards. Oh no, no, he's just um, he's maybe come to a realization of other people have. 
yeah. or come to an acceptance. So they're basically that in there. It's really interesting that that kind of philosophical exploration of the the ethics behind what they have to do. That's really mm. interesting, and that's why exactly as you say, Scott. What might be really interesting is, is, is the other act where yeah. they have to deal with that. Which is a bit of a problem because they could have had that because there's this is a two-hour film and there was not two hours of material in it, and it's not the pacing that bothers me. Like you know, I really like the Andromeda strain. I just think that there's too little there and it's been stretched out too much when they could have actually had some of the aftermath rather than finishing where it did. Yeah. So in the end, I kind of found that a bit frustrating. So I, I don't think it's great, but I I applaud its existence uh, and as. Netflix sci-fi films go, you know, it's not the Cloverfield Paradox, so... <laughs> and for that, absolutely zero, we must be thankful. Yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> now, the only real problem I had was the music. I hated the music mm. with a fierce and burning passion, because it's appalling. Mm. It's so out of place. It's massively overscored, for one thing. But like, half the time it's like playing ho- it's horror music. And and I just don't get what was hoped to have been achieved by that at all. Uh, like some of the, the more dramatic parts, perhaps, like where they've got to go and try, you know, fix a thing before something bad happens or something. But other parts of the film, like when they don't know whether Michael's there for nefarious reasons or not. Yeah. And maybe an occasional bit of music that might suggest that a character is not, isn't sure about him or something like that. But no, there are like huge swathes during the start of the film where there was horror music playing. It's like, well, um, is this going to be like the end of Sunshine? Is Michael about to cut these fellas up? <laughs> it's so, it was horrendously inappropriate and horrendously loud. And I honestly wonder if I would have enjoyed this a good 50% more without that terrible score. I find it so unwelcome. Interesting. No, it didn't, uh, didn't occur to me, didn't, but apparently didn't bother me that way. Okay. I couldn't have picked the music out of a lineup if you told me these days. So, um, so yeah, it clearly didn't make it that much of an impact on me. But yeah, it's a shame it's not better. But well, we could say that about any number of yeah. films, couldn't we? So, uh, well, so I, I like the, where there were. It's clear to have a big budget, so they were they were cutting things where it made sense. So instead mm. of trying to create a big CGI sequence of a rocket being launched, the entire thing's inside the cockpit and they're shaking the actors' chairs a bit. Yeah. You know, they, they saved their, Which, to be fair works pretty well yeah. So, yeah. they saved their budget for the the bits where it really mattered and the other thing I oh yeah the, the design of the ship it seems quite accurate um, to how that would be I mean you watch yeah it seemed believable yeah, yeah I, I, I'd love everything to look like the Starship Enterprise but it doesn't whereas if you've ever seen the the inside of the International Space Station it more or less looks like the ship did in this no, yeah. it's not glamorous, yeah. but it is realistic. It looks like a submarine, yeah, but fighter. It's like, yeah, it was, it was like maybe wrong with the Martian. It's like the so the Hermes, the the ship that the rest of the crew are on in the Martian. It looks like a big space hotel. It's so clean and shiny yes. and white, and like this one. <laughs> no, there's pad in the wall and there's boxes, and it's basically like the sub the the basement of a hospital or something. <laughs> yeah, and, and like a submarine, as you say, because I don't think. Um, NASA and the like would be more going for function over style. Yeah, difficult to get a uh, king size bed and the <laughs> payload for it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I'm glad it exists though, because um, absolutely, yeah. it's yeah. thoughtful science fiction. I mean, it's maybe not the hardest, but it's thoughtful. And I think the best science fiction does have that kind of or that ability in it to to bring up an ethical and moral quandary. Yeah, uh, and like, and I, I, it's kind of just frustrating that voice had the aftermath. Um, yeah, and they, they, they had time for it, so uh, it's it's not bad, and I'm glad it exists. Good, good. Uh, let's crash onwards to nobody. Bob Odenkirk, action hero. It doesn't really sound right, does it? Liam Neeson may have helped launch the aging action man genre in 2008 with Taken, and he was only a couple of years younger than Odenkirk is now, but Neeson still cut an imposing figure. Bruce Willis is perhaps a better comparison. His regular guy hero, John McClane, more closely resembling the unassuming, dishevelled appearance of Odenkirk's factory manager, Hutch Mansell. But still, that lawyer guy off Breaking Bad in action hero? Get out of town. Yep, here he is. Mansell's job and appearance belie a darker past, one that he's tried to put behind him. When he was an auditor, 
for some of those three-letter agencies of the United States government. Oh, how they love their euphemisms. But it's hard to reconcile with how he's first presented, and the drab monotony of his daily life and moribund marriage. Mansell is, though, as the film describes, a wolf in sheep's clothing. And that wolf is awoken when two burglars break into his house and seemingly steal his daughter's bracelet. Now awake, the wolf is hungry. Untouched decides to feed it to drunken bus punk, a meal the wolf finds quite satisfying. However, part of its sustenance happened to have been the brother of a member of the Russian mafia, and he's not happy. This fellow's, uh, well, he's a bit of a psychopath, really, and also has many, many men of hench. You can imagine where it goes from here. The plot is, as in so much of the genre, on the daft side, living towards ridiculous at times, but that's fine because it's really just an excuse for some really quick crunchy and go action scenes, in which Odenkirk acquits himself commendably. Editing helps him out a little here, but editors William Ye and Evan Schiff, along with director Elia Nyshuler, resist the urge to go full-born, allowing us to actually see the damn thing, and Odenkirk is actually really selling it. Pains are even taken to show that, while confident and skilled, Hutch isn't some invulnerable superhero, and he can get hurt. And while expecting that your hero is going to lose maybe a bit much, there are plenty of ooh moments and a decent level of threat to our protagonist. But the real key to nobody's success is how very, very funny it is. I don't think I've laughed this hard in ages, and certainly not anything in a genre. Mm-hmm. Odenkirk's the key to that, as you might expect. But he is given a run for his money at times by a great turn from Christopher Lloyd as Hutchie's <laughs> nursing home resident father. It's really nice to see Lloyd again, actually, who I don't think I've seen since... since City a Dame to Kill for, perhaps? Yeah. <laughs> At least done stuff since then, but I've not seen any of it. Um, mm-hmm. Nobody is taut and energetic, spending the minimum amount of time and set up and getting into the plot light action as soon as possible. It barrels along, skillfully mixing action and humour, and even manages to make a you-think-Bob-Odenkirk-is-an-unlikely-action-hero hold-my-beer move within the same damn film. <laughs> if there's a criticism it's that the opening scene sees Hutch remove a can of tuna from his pocket and I was forced to think of Neil Breen <laughs> uh, forced forced he says uh, Neil Breen's never far from the front of your mind <laughs> no no he's not because he's going to end us all I'm sure of it uh, eyes on, on Breen Craig uh, and no, that's about it. One of the best action films I've seen in years. Highly recommended. Huh. I, I always think at some point there will come some some switch in my head where I go, oh, I I don't need these kind of silly action films anymore. And a lot of the times I've seen enough kind of bad action films that I think I'm at that point. And then something like nobody comes along and says, oh no, you just like this when it's done quite well. Yes. And nobody's done really quite well. Um, yeah, it is really funny. It's got some really crunchy, nice action scenes. It is, of course, wildly preposterous. Um, it's, But that's kind of part of the point of it. And yeah, it's just a tremendous amount of fun. Um I very much enjoyed pretty much everything that it was trying to serve to me. I don't think I've got any particular complaints with it that's not, well, endemic to the fact of it being an action film, yeah. so it is what it is. Um, it's a lot. It's got a lot of the kind of style and trappings of John Wick without being kind of having taken itself quite so seriously. Um, it is, as you say, really very funny, and um, it is the only example I can think of of Chekhov's Claymore mine, so <laughs> it's got that going for it, if nothing else. Yeah, I'm just... Yeah, it, it doesn't take itself seriously without like kind of winking too much about it. Uh, that's yeah, yeah. It's pitched just right. I, I think Bob Odenkirk has a great deal to do with that. Uh, he just seems to be selling that so well. He kind of knows what he's about here. It's yeah, pitched it just perfectly, including the the kind of running joke about giving his life story to people who are about to die. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I'm dying before he's finished his thoughts. Um, yes, <laughs> yeah, it's just I'm trying to give you exposition here. Stop dying. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, I'm. I don't think I've laughed this much in quite a while. Not that I can recall immediately. Anyway, just, um, and from such simple things too. When he goes to visit the tattoo parlor near the beginning of the film to get some information about who broke into his house, <laughs> and then one yeah. guy, like they're all kind of like tough about because he just looks like a. It looks like a schlub, right? He's just this guy. Yeah. He's, just, he, he, he's the most guyish guy you can imagine, really. <laughs> uh, yeah. And 
then the the older guy with the beard clocks a tattoo in his wrist. I just it's like yeah. right, see ya, and he slams the door, and you hear like seven locks going. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's really really good. I, um, I mean, I'd only watched this because I saw him's like. But Wodenkirk is an action hero. That that sounds unexpected. I'll give it a go, and I'm so glad I did. It's one yeah. of the most entertaining things I've seen in months. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, highly recommended from here as well. Yeah, and a brilliant turn from Christopher Lloyd. I could stand to see a spin off with just him, possibly. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> you seen this, Greg? No. Nope. Fix that. Yeah, I will. Uh, I wasn't expecting you to basically insinuate that Bob Odenkirk action movie would be the one thing that I should probably try and watch from everything we've discussed tonight. But go on, then I'll have a look yeah, at I it. No, it is absolutely the best film of the of uh, six out of the seven of these I've seen, and it's far and away the best. Cool. Right. Um, sure. Talking of far and away the best, uh, the opposite of that is what we have to finish with. Um, and unfortunately, yeah. I allocated that to you, Craig, because I didn't want to do it. Um, well, that's all right. I understand entirely. <laughs> and I backseat the other ones first, so Mortal Kombat. <laughs> this is what happens with me having become an infrequent contributor now. <laughs> I just don't get the pickings of the best. Um, Mortal Kombat, then, or what happens when an unstoppably stupid idea meets an immovably dumb fan base? Well... I'm not going to waste my time or yours trying to explain a movie based on a series of arcade fighting games that will celebrate its 30th anniversary next year. Mortal Kombat's selling point as a game all those years ago was its hyper-violent combat and finishing moves, rendered on screen using what were, for the time, fairly realistic digitised representations of its combatants. The main complaint people had with Mortal Kombat the movie some three years or so later was that said violence was almost entirely absent. What, you may ask, is the point in making a movie based on the most plot-bereft <laughs> genre of video games if you remove the one thing it had going for it? Well, looky here, it's Mortal Kombat 2021 to answer all your alternate reality questions, proving, hopefully conclusively, that if you take a movie with no plot and no violence, then add some violence, you'll end up with a movie with some <laughs> violence. There are people among us who enjoyed Mortal Kombat 1995, and I'm not here to judge them much. Those people felt that the only thing missing from that movie was the gore, but now that we find ourselves on this branching timeline of reality we call the 2020s, many of those same people are now moaning that Mortal Kombat 2021 is missing the plot. Seriously, this, it transpires, (laughs) is the result of the more recent entries in the uh, gaming franchise leaning into soap opera storytelling that has, apparently, actually won them some awards. Now, I've played those games, and I did not notice anything resembling a plot, but if we assume these people making such claims are being honest interlocutors, then it seems like a great shame the makers of this reboot have missed the mark again, albeit coming from the opposite direction. I'm not here to deny anyone the pleasure of the things they enjoy the most, and I do genuinely wish that they had received the plot and the gore that they so desperately wanted, and, I have to assume, deserved. I will say that the one thing which could have elevated this movie at least a little would have been a smidgen more self-awareness and much more of a sense of fun. Okay, that's two things, but clearly no one is listening, and certainly no one will hear me say, the first movie didn't have any plot either. That's just something we've been nodding along to up until now because the people who extol that are dangerous, unstable individuals. There are moments where Mortal Kombat 2021 threatens to enjoy itself, mainly embodied by Kano, one of the heart-ripping bad guys of the series, played here by Josh Lawson, who brings some welcome Aussie humour to the mix, but mainly it's taking itself way too seriously, and if you're not a fan of the games, then frankly, there's no particular reason you should so much as hover over the play button, and that's about as much as I care to say about that. You remember earlier this evening, Craig, I said that I hadn't watched um, Without Remorse. Um mm. Perhaps one of the reasons for that is because what I decided to do, and now I've got a bone to pick with you and Scott, because if you were any sort of good friends, you would have already made a podcast episode several years ago in which you warned anybody off of watching Mortal Kombat. Um, I watched Mortal oh, Kombat. Oh no. Because I'd what never seen it. Done? Uh, the original I'm talking about, I, 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 had yeah. no, I had never seen it. And I watched yeah. that. And <sighs> what a terrible, 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 terrible film that is. Um, well, I think you mean. <laughs> cult classic which is apparently what some people consider it to be yeah. um i mean it's it absolutely misses the point because at the time mortal kombat was a middling fighting game with a gimmick 
animated film that completely shoot the gimmick. So, you know, but well done them. That was smart. But yeah, a truly, truly awful film. Mortal Kombat 21, 2021 is also a terrible, terrible film, but more just terrible, terrible rather than terrible, 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 terrible. Um, and it looks a bit nicer. And that's about it. It's like they've gone out of their way to find the people with the least charisma possible. <laughs> yeah. Um, and basically, while he, he's not the best thing I've ever seen, this film is utterly intolerable anytime Josh Lawson's not talking. Yeah. He's the only thing that makes this even vaguely bearable. Mm. What a pile of crap. <laughs> I see a lot of people <laughs> discussing online the fact that uh, they think the guy playing Sub-Zero was absolutely amazing. And I can only suggest that perhaps those people were watching a different film to me. <laughs> um, play, playing's a bit um, of a, a strange word to use. I mean, yes. had his clothes on, maybe. Uh-huh. Yes, he's he's certainly showing his eyes through his headgear. Yeah. Well, I mean, it doesn't help that he, he's lumbered with some of the worst dialogue I have possibly heard ever, and I'm not. That's not hyperbole. Is that when um, he walks into, uh, walks up to Shang Tsung, and I've seen um, him Chin, Chin Han be considerably more charismatic. Every just like being directed with no charisma in this film as well. I think, or just, like don't care about it, but. Um, and he calls him Behan, and he says, "I'm not Behan. I'm Sub Zero now." And it's basically the worst line I've ever heard ever, and also the worst line reading. It's so poor yes. and awkward, and also one of those. As you know, boss, I'm not like yes. that anymore. Yeah, that's it. Um, <laughs> and, and fortunately, this isn't as bad as 1985 film for that, which was appalling. It was, it was like name drops all the way through, or like catchphrase drops. And it was terrible, but. Uh, yeah, this film is intolerable. It's boring. It's um, all the gore is kind of distasteful, actually, because I think got Mortal Kombat got to the point where actually, it, when it it was kind of fun as a gimmick when it was all digitized. Now it's kind of realistic. It's actually kind of stomach turning. I think they've gone a bit too far. Mm. Um, yeah, I think it was too realistic when the magic cat that was acting like a bud saw cut the flying woman in half. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was too grisly realistic. I mean, that could be just a scene out of modern day life, really. Which is, which is, which is ironically <laughs> probably the bit now in retrospect hearing about it. I would probably think, haha, that would be quite funny. But I missed because I went to the bathroom and I thought, well, there's no point in pausing this for two minutes while I nip to the loo. Realistic as in, like yeah. the effect on a body. It's like yeah, this this kind of unpleasant. There, I don't care to watch this. Um, yeah. Yes, I, I'm not going to pretend that I was not amused for parts in Mortal Kombat. <laughs> um, uh, particularly, I think a lot of the bits that I like should have been in a different film, like the the kind of more the somewhat more grounded fights that they have. There's some decent fight choreography in there, particularly that that early fight in the kind of um, you know samurai era where. The, the the original scorpion gets killed at the start. All oh, all that fight is pretty well done. Yeah, the, but could probably be done in another film. The fights are be better. better than they were in the first film. Which they barely yeah. are non-existent in the first film. Yes, and I think in general, the more effects they start layering on, onto it, the worse they get, and the least in, the less interesting they are. I mean, I enjoyed this film mainly because I treated it the same way that I treated the Mortal Kombat games, which was to say I skipped the cutscenes. So anytime people were talking, I'd be hitting the. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> skip five seconds, five seconds, five seconds. Let, so it, let us not do one pretend of this is the point of a fighting game. <laughs> yes, I thought you were saying, Craig, about the, the people like, saying that they've got good plots and stuff. Now, I've heard lots of people talk about that, saying like the Mortal Kombat Eleven, the the time jumping thing. I was like, oh, it's really good. Like, really, yeah. barely any video well, games have plots that are actually good. Yeah, um, I'm yeah. willing to take people's word for that. I'll never know for definite because I'm never not going to mash the X button to get through all of that. <laughs> yeah, there are points of it that I liked. I I did watch most of um, Kano's dialogue, which tended to be quite funny. I could live with that. Um, the way he keeps wanting a fireball, and it's like, ha, got a laser. That's yeah. better than a fireball. <laughs> I wonder if he actually had anything like like uh, ad libbing his lines on because his lines, are, it's not, it can be just his delivery. He's got the only good lines in the film. Like, everything else is just yeah. so leaden, and like, I wonder if he kind of spice up a bit. It's like he's the only character that knows he's in a, a game based on a film based on a yeah. video game, and everyone else is yeah. taking it as, as seriously as they possibly can. <laughs> he's hasn't, the only one hasn't having he, any sort of fun with it. Hasn't he got a sort of background in comedy? I don't. I'm not really familiar with him, but I want to say I checked his IMDb profile uh, a while back, hmm. and I think I wouldn't be surprised to find he's had some input in that. Yeah, I, I don't think I've seen him before. 
Uh, he's in Anchorman 2, but I don't really recall the character. That's the only thing I know him from. Um, but mm. uh, I mean, I'd be prepared to watch him again now because he's the only thing that made this film tolerable. Yeah. And interestingly, I don't know if it really. Well, I, I, from what you're saying, Greg, I, I guess this is where it's at. I've not read any reviews or reaction to Mortal Kombat at all, but it, it feels like it's fallen somewhat between trying to make a film adaptation and trying to make a fan service film and didn't quite nail either like if you want to talk about this as a film then there's you, you could batter it on in like a number of films but like fronts but you know there's there's way too many characters for a film but for a piece of fan service there's not enough of them you know yeah. you should have more of a character all that kind of stuff so yeah. it, it's like they didn't know quite where they were aiming for yeah um i say there's maybe 20 minutes worth of stuff in here that i actually found some enjoyment from so i may be a bit more positive than i read to you guys but then again this was really in a context where you can happily skip forward skip to the next bit that's actually um going to be a you think might be appealing if i had to sit and watch this in a theater where i didn't have a remote control i can only imagine how much i would have hated it so um uh, that's my only recommendation i can if you must watch mortal kombat make sure you can skip large chunks of it um, because yeah. lots of it's not very good i, I didn't skip any of it because it's just it's just not how i do um, and yeah. I can confirm that I hated it. So just for, that. for me, the only <laughs> the only reason I have any sense of disappointment about this whatsoever, because under normal conditions, you just wouldn't expect anything from it anyway. But I actually thought yeah. the trailer for it when it landed was quite entertaining, and I laughed at it. Um, and I think I came out of that thinking, oh, right, okay, this is going to have a really good balance and actually just be really good fun. Um, and it and it just isn't. Yeah. It just yeah. isn't. And it's just a. I was gonna, I was going to say it would be a fatal a fatal flaw if it didn't sound a little bit too close to I was making a bad pun about fatalities or something but it's just yeah <laughs> it's just not a good movie it's just not a good it's not a fun time and that's the one thing that this movie needed to be more than anything absolutely else. yeah 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 it didn't have a terrible CGI lizard character that looked like Steve Buscemi's character from Monsters Inc so cool. it clearly fails <laughs> there is that. Oh, time to go and download nobody. Yeah, that'll wrap us up for the day, so thanks very much for your attention. If you'd like to get in touch with us for any particular reason, then do so on the emails at podcast at fudsonfilm.com or on Twitter at fudsonfilm. And until next time, I'll bid you adieu, and I'm sure that these guys will do too. Bye. I'll be the same.